you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey everyone, Future Zoe here. I am thrilled to announce that we have some merch for you guys. So if you want to help support the podcast, go ahead and check out our brand new shop over at our website, themaniculumpodcast.com. We also have it up on Redbubble. You can just find us on Redbubble by typing in The Maniculum Podcast into that search bar. And all of our designs are 100% hand-drawn by Mac. They are inspired by medieval manuscripts and reference things that we've talked about in the podcast, like our emotional support chicken, Copeld. Everybody loves her. So if you are inclined to support the podcast or just want to rep some podcast, gear. Go ahead and check that out on our website. Future Mac here. In case you haven't guessed from the title, this is the final episode regarding the Wonders of the East. It is just our segments since we finished the text itself in the previous episode. And so, in this episode, a small band of men attempt to kill Thord Minas. That joke is going to go right past anyone who's not caught up on Saga Thing. Anyway, here's the episode. Oh, man. Okay, shall we go through our segments then? Let us. And Mary, if you have to go, let us know. Yes. I do need to go, but I do I want to know. We can run through the segments quickly. How's that? Yes. Actually, that? that's going to be pretty easy because the first two, at least, we can just skip. There's no dialogue and there's no deaths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, the third is pretty relevant, if broad. We have a lot of those guys. Everything. Yeah, so since doing this section as we normally do, it would just be reading the text again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's say, please see the above. <laughs> yeah. I will I'll list it out on the blog for sure. So that'll be pretty easy to do. I did write most of them down, so I'll list them off pretty quickly. We've got the flaming chickens. We've got the double-headed snake, the double-headed dog, mm-hmm. the homo dubii, the ant dogs who dig gold, the lion-headed giants, the titans, or like the giant people who eat people, the mm-hmm. Lurtekes, I think, the Blimier, the Onocentaurs, the Fawns, the Ketanos, the Kings, the Donestra, the Gorgons, and the Monk in the Temple. Yeah, I think that's all of them. I got most of them. Yeah. So there we go. Bestiary. Done. <laughs> Right. And now we can move on to the segment that I think Mary will be most happy to contribute to, which is how can we apply this to a D&D game? There's there's so much here. Let me count the ways. (laughs) Right. Like I said, this is a campaign setting. Yeah. Wow. The whole thing. The whole thing really is. I mean, I think the thing that sticks out to me, you could use any part of it mm-hmm. easily and it would be amazing the things that stick out the most to me are the snakes guarding the pepper mm-hmm. i do like that. snakes with the ram horns guarding the pepper because i just feel like there's a story there for sure <laughs> and it would be an excellent sort of heist mm-hmm session potentially i feel like you could create an entire culture around that like think of the town that's outside of the wilderness where the snakes are and the culture that has to exist because of that 
I want the moment where the party goes to a town and they're like, oh yeah, the snakes. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the idea of them existing as like kind of an opportunistic gold rush town where they're like, we're just here to sell you the stuff you need to go get pepper. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I love that. That really sticks out to me. And the cannibals that use familiar voices. Yeah. Really. I like mm-hmm. this. Sticks out. That could be potentially, I mean, that... Snakes guarding Pepper, kind of funny. Like, just such a bizarre situation that it's funny. Cannibals using your friends' voices to lure you in, genuinely terrifying. True. Yeah. Very true. You could do that really creepily. Ugh. I mean, it could it could be so scary. Especially if it's like a travel thing where, like, someone's yes. on watch and they hear somebody else and it's like, wait, what? What's going on? I mean, I will, I will 100% use yeah. that at some point. Yeah. And if anyone is listening right now who I DM for, ignore that. <laughs> Here's an idea. Split the party. Because then they're not going to know whose voice it actually is. That's true. That would be. Although you, you'd have to find some way to put the players in, like, separate rooms. You wouldn't necessarily have to. It depends on how good your players are at metagaming versus not metagaming. That's true. But then you could go like, oh, you hear John the Paladin calling your yeah. name. Do I know? Yeah. I better go see what he uh-huh. wants. I just saw him an hour ago. I'm sure it's fine. Yep. Wow. Flaming chickens. Flaming chickens. <sighs> you got to incorporate the flaming how, chickens. How pissed would a player be, though, if it's like, I reach out and pet this chicken. Okay, roll. <laughs> well, you, you, roll dexterity to see if you can get away before you burst. Yeah, into yeah. you take half fire damage. Roll a uh, fortitude against spontaneous combustion. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, see, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. It's like you could come into a new town and there's like these really fancy looking chickens and everyone's like their signs like do no trespassing. Don't touch You know, and it's chickens and it's like what the heck? Why? And then you realize that oh, I can only get these specialty items here. Or like, oh no, you know, like there was a Witcher quest where you have to bring back this guy's goat. And it was one of the like dumbest quests in the entire game because you you needed to get his goat before he would help you on something else. But what if your players are like needing to find this guy's chickens and he's like, I need these chickens, they're super valuable chickens, but he doesn't mention that they're fire chickens. Oh, <laughs> Suddenly, I need a, a low level I encounter. Need a beware of chicken. Beware of chicken. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> beware of chicken. Or just a lot of very like professional looking signs that say, "Please do not pet the chickens." Mm-hmm. <laughs> do not start. No chickens. indication of like why. Yeah. Because it's like, that well, that's it's so one great. of those things where we are all very aware of this stuff. You know, like we're like, yeah, you yeah. obviously don't. You know, you don't check a toaster in water while it's plugged in because you're going to electrocute yourself. We know this, but. If aliens show up and they don't know how this works, then they're not going to know that. So if you have a culture in a certain place, it's like little taboos like that, that your players might not know if they're from a different place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love doing stuff like that. I love pulling stuff like that. (laughs) I feel like you could also, just for flavor, you could include some of these non-aggressive creatures, like the the sheep, like the dogs-headed sheep with the chicken feet. Just yeah. chuck one of those in there, and the princess has or, it, and it's her favorite pet. Or like a, you know, a giant lion man who gets scared and... Sweats blood. Sweats blood. Then your players are going, what was that about? I don't know, you scared him. Yeah. Huh? You scared him. I, knowing my party, they would be like, I'm going to track him down. <laughs> I'm going to make him my friend. See? There you go. He could be like the wise sage. It's like, oh, you got to you gotta find this guy, but you like nobody can ever find him. He's always up in his cave. Sweating. Sweating. 
just really bad anxiety. <laughs> oh, no. That would be a really fun player quirk, though. Anxiety? Sweating blood? Yeah, like, if your player <laughs> if your player fails a charisma check, they get really nervous and they start sweating blood. I actually play a anxiety-based barbarian. That's amazing. Game, and so when they rage, it's more like they're just so nervous and upset, they kind of black out. <laughs> That's amazing. That's great. So there you go. There, there's another one you could you could do. You could have the monk in the temple be a thing. He could always be there. He'd just eat oysters. Yeah. You'd <laughs> <laughs> be like, before I help you, I have something you need to bring. <laughs> oysters. oysters. It's lunchtime. <laughs> okay, what about the ants digging gold? You could find a more humane way of getting the gold. A local animal rights activist has requested that an adventuring party find an alternate way to get the gold from these ant beasts. There you go. Also, like, obviously, dragons are cool. Dragons are always cool. Dragon king. And a giant rat king of dragons. See, that's something you could do. You could just tell your players, like, oh, there's a dragon king. And you don't explain what the dragon king actually is. And they're thinking, like, king of the dragons. No. He's royalty. No. He's gonna talk to us. (laughs) No, that is not what this is. No, it is a bunch of dragons who have gone insane for being tangled together. That's horrifying. But I love it. Oh, yeah. I feel, truly, I feel like I'm going to get off this call and be like, all right, everybody, (laughs) I am running a game. (laughs) Oh, man. The other one that I thought of when we were about a little bit through, because we were talking about the snakes. What if there's just like an NPC who's just a snake enthusiast? And he's like, you guys need to go to this country. They've got the coolest snakes. And I really just, (laughs) I need one of these snakes. I need an escort. Can someone please help me get to this country with the snakes? (laughs) Plus, he would just be a funny NPC. It doesn't even have to be a quest. It could just be a guy who really yeah. likes snakes. Just loves snakes. Mm-hmm. That's always my favorite thing, or one of my favorite things, when there's just an NPC that's got a weird obsession, mm-hmm. and everyone's mm-hmm. like, what's his deal? <laughs> Why? Like, is there something about these snakes that we're supposed to figure out? No, he just loves snakes. He just snakes. loves the snakes. Dude likes snakes. I, this reminds me of one time Mac was running a game, and there was a bunch of ants that were crawling into a hole and they kept saying they had a secret. Wait, what? They said they had a secret and we were like, what, what secret? And we kept asking the ants all these questions. Someone said a fun secret. Oh no. Like they kept saying they had a seek, a fun secret. And we were like, what is going on? And I was like, I don't know. There's some ants. They have a separate thing going on. And we became obsessed. (laughs) You can't just put something like that in front of your players. I have this habit of putting, like, set decoration in that people end up finding more interesting than I expected. So, the ant story. Several years ago, when I still lived in Mississippi, uh, this is when Mary and I knew each other. We met in grad school down there. I was looking for ways to make overland travel more interesting for my players. Because I didn't want to just say, all right, a few weeks later, you get where you're going. That's boring. And I also didn't really want to plan out side quests in detail because that's a time suck for everyone because I have to plan something out, which may or may not happen because sometimes players aren't interested in side quests. And this was during the time when I was teaching high school English 
and I just did not have extra time or energy. But I also didn't want to do the traditional thing and just have random encounters, because combat takes up huge amounts of game time, and I'm just not into that. And I happened to find a PDF that is, let me give you the appropriate citation, written by Eric Hindley and published by Raging Swan Press. And it's called Wilderness Dressing. And the idea is, it's like random encounters, but instead of it being a fight, it's just interesting set dressing that may or may not be at all relevant. Just something to say like, hey, on your way traveling today, you see this and this. It can flesh out the world a little bit. Because, you know, again, it's, it's set dressing. It's having stuff on the stage instead of them just walking over bare boards. And it's, it's built around D100 tables, because why wouldn't it be? That's the respectable way to do that kind of thing. And I rolled the following option for this group. Swarming red ants carry the complete remains of a skeletal human hand. And I was like, cool. That's kind of evocative, but, like, obviously it's just something that happens. But the players kind of fixated on it. And what I had forgotten was that one of the players could talk to insects. I forget why, whether it was an innate ability or a magical item, because I think I've had both happen in campaigns I ran. I like having players who have the ability to talk to insects, and I also like making the insects kind of unhelpful and not very bright, because, you know, they're bugs. They're just bugs. So the party decides to ask the ants what's th what they're doing. Ants say, it's a secret. Because I was on the spot, and that was the answer I came up with. And of course, once this is relayed back to the party, another one of the players says, ask them if it's a fun secret. And so the player who can talk to insects turns to the ants and says, is it a fun secret? Ants say yes. The player who can talk to insects relays this back to the rest of the party, and there's a pause. And then they're like, why did we ask that? That gives us no information at all. But this became a thing that they were stuck on for, like, a while in-game. Like, they go, like, remember those ants? What were those ants up to? I had actually started to try and figure out what the ants might be up to in a way that would be satisfying for them. Because, I mean, obviously the real answer is, like, food. They're gathering food. They're hungry. Like, maybe there's still bits of meat attached to that hand. Whatever. But I wanted it to be something interesting. Fortunately or unfortunately, it never did get resolved because, like I said, this was the year I was teaching high school English, which was a huge drain on my time and my mental health. And so that campaign never really concluded. It just kind of petered out. So that's what Mary's remembering here. Back to our regularly scheduled program. Oh, always. Every single time. I'll, like, throw something out and they're like, wait, what? What is I mean, that? it's the classic, like we want to investigate the chair scenario. <laughs> yeah, I was about no. to bring that up. The chair. It's just a chair. No, no, it's no. It's just a chair. But it's a but chair you mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> I think the most egregious example of this was in that same campaign. I was designing this, like, treasure room of a sinister organization. I was like, okay, we need some stuff in there that's not, like, the important stuff, the stuff that, that the players are going in there for. Mm -hmm. I'm like... Tiny fairy in a cage. That's creepy. Oh, It'll go no. right there. We took it home. <laughs> I had to do multiple sessions centered around that fairy. I can imagine. Oh, no. 
Oh my god. I mean, also, notably, most of us were mutants. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like, I had raccoon legs coming out of my torso. Oh my gosh. Like an insect claw. It was a wild time. Indeed. Oh my goodness. Okay, so we've done we've done our D&D. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? In states unborn and accents yet unknown. I mean, we still have sort of the, the trope of like the Amazonian woman and and that group of people being not right. accepted. Yeah, I, I think we mentioned that there is like a connection between some of the stuff in here and like what you'd see in freak shows mm-hmm. in 20th century mm-hmm. America. For sure. 100%. Like, mm-hmm. Centaurs yeah. are still a thing. I mean, you can cite almost any fantasy novel, really, and it can connect to something in this text. I mean, even as something as basic yeah. as dragons or centaurs who are, I mean, they're in Harry Potter, for instance. Mm-hmm. Centaurs yeah. feature there. And I mean, like Phoenix, Phoenixes, mm-hmm. Griffins, yeah. mm-hmm. like all... All mythological creatures that have stuck around and had different interpretations yes. in a variety of texts. Yes. Yeah. I think one thing that's very interesting is there's an ongoing dialogue, I'd say especially in the D&D community right now, about what makes a monster. Because so many people mm-hmm. are choosing to play characters who are, yes. quote unquote, monster races. And yeah. like, what counts as people? My favorite playable races are goblins and kobolds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, what counts as being a monster or what counts as being a person? I right. think. And this text still focuses on that. This is a great issue going mm-hmm. on. I mean, the narrative around tieflings, for example, yes. has totally changed. Completely. I mean, like, when I first started playing, which wasn't so long ago, which was like, yeah. I don't know, a few years ago, it was like, tieflings are associated with devils and they mm-hmm. are mostly evil and now it even just a few years later it's like tieflings are great they can be mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. like everyone loves tieflings mm-hmm. everyone's playing a tiefling like. now yeah yeah oh yeah or even something like i mean Honestly, Jenny, who we mentioned, loves mm-hmm. playing monstrous mm-hmm. races. Mm-hmm. And every time we yeah. start a game, she's like, can I be a Gorgon? Can I be a Noel? Can I be mm-hmm. a Selkie? Like, all of these different things. And it does force a party, sort of like on that small level, to interrogate what makes something a monster versus what makes something a person? Mm-hmm. Is it like intent? Is it how they look? Is it an alignment question? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. is, or even just like twisting NPCs to be, you know, monstrous, but friendly. I want to say it's descent into Avernus is a, like officially branded D and D campaign that has a really friendly mind flayer in it. Oh, who's just like a guy who, likes to research (laughs) (laughs) there's always a black sheep in the family yeah (laughs) it's just it is interesting to see how fans this is like such a hobby horse of mine to see how fans Mm. take the canonical text and shift it to be something different yes absolutely often in more interesting ways than this that's so true that is so true which is something that's absolutely fascinating to me especially because it's interesting to see players want to do this because every player wants to be a hero and that's kind of the whole point of doing a role-playing game like this is that you get to be the hero but you also want to have something that makes you special or something that Mm -hmm. makes you a bit different and 
I think something that's really interesting is we're seeing players, but also like the, the D&D community go from, I want to be an ideal to, I want to explore both the positives and negatives yes. of this role and see what happens if I go with that? And what happens if I choose a higher road or a lower road? How are people going to interact with me? And so if you have a really, really good DM who's sensitive to those sorts mm -hmm. of things, then you can have a really complex campaign. I mean, it's been said before, D&D yes. &D is a form of therapy if you do it in a certain way. 100%. Oh, yeah. I, my husband and I actually became really good friends playing D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. He joined our D&D &D party about a year into us playing the Curse of Strahd campaign. Nice. My character and his character immediately became best friends. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we sort of like bonded through that. And then we started like hanging out outside of D&D &D and then like <laughs> kissing. And now we're married. And I, like, 100% that summer before we started dating, we were working some stuff out via RPGs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it was a joke. Our DM would say, like, so you guys have characters who are married to other people, but, like, y'all are a thing, right? Like, your characters are, that's the subtext, right? <laughs> <laughs> we're all like, no, 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 no. Yes. yes. Oh wow, <laughs> that's great. No, so like our friends so uncomfortably had to watch that unfold. <laughs> and by the end of the summer, Jenny, who I lived with, was like, "Go on a date, or else." Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Your flirting in RPGs is hurting us. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Uh, when a character and the player sort of line up too much in a yes. certain way. Yeah. Or you I, know, like everybody has their, their types mm -hmm. that they play. Like mm -hmm. I always want to play like a himbo fighter with daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> and even when I think I'm not doing that. You still do it. I am. Like I there's always a moment where I'm like, shit, I've got daddy issues again. I didn't mean for it to happen. All art is a self-portrait in some way, and it can portray different aspects <laughs> yeah. of who you are. You know, mm -hmm. and you can explore all of those aspects, especially through D&D. &D. And so the, the concept of who is a monster? Am I a monster? And when you have to confront, am I a monster by picking mm -hmm. a race that is considered monstrous, then you have to work through that and decide what boundaries you want to set about how I'm going to let other people treat me versus am I going to conform to whatever D&D &D society rules are in that setting and in that campaign? Am I going to act out against that? What are the consequences for that? And that mm -hmm. takes a really understanding relationship with you and your DM. You have to work yes. that out. And it doesn't need to be, it, it can be its own conversation, but it mm -hmm. can also be something that you explore as you go. It depends on the storytelling. I love, and, I love and when it narrative works, games. It works. Oh yes. 100%. But there we go. Anyway, there's our, our modern culture. <laughs> right. I mean, fair. We were talking about freak shows and we missed out Ooh. one. Jojo the dog-faced boy. <gasps> I am not familiar with this one. What? I'm not the, either. The dog-faced boy was a staple of uh, freak shows and we have dog-faced people in here. Whoa! I didn't realize that was a staple in freak shows. I didn't either. Maybe it's just a phrase that stuck in my head. Huh. I mean, to be, to be fair, when I'm looking at freak shows, most of the time I am looking at, like, fat people. Like, the fat man yeah, yeah, stereotype. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, there's a, there was a real person. He was a Russian sideshow performer. He was just one of those, he didn't actually have a right. dog's head. He was just one of those people who had, like, excessive, that, that disorder that makes you have excessive hair growth. Yeah. Oh, yes. Here, here's pseudism. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's yes, the yes, one. yes. 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 But yeah, he was just some guy. Yeah. This Thanks really, this whole text does have the vibe of like, I saw someone who didn't look like me, mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. disturbed yeah. me. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Although to be fair, a lot of the time they're just like these are just like uh, I don't know they, they look different. They're they're people. Yeah. Sometimes it's weird. Mostly when Alexander's involved. Okay, Alexander's is probably didn't have to be here. <laughs> the tradition of Alexander and his like appearance in medieval romance is where a lot of this stuff comes from. So that like they have to mention, oh hey, I remember reading that like Alexander met. Yeah, these guys. Alexander did this. Yeah. Okay. Omitatus. So who do we want in a D&D party is our next one. All of them. <laughs> we, gotta pick, we gotta pick party. four basic ones. We gotta do the Golden Girls template. And for those of you who don't know that reference, the ideal party. Like me. Really? You've never heard about this one? The Okay, so when Gygax was talking about, I believe it was Gygax was talking about Okay, let me back up a step further. Gygax, who developed D&D as we know it today, Gary Gygax, when he was talking, and I believe it was him, I might be wrong, when he was talking about what the perfect D&D party is, it's the Golden Girls. And that is based off of which, like, a certain set of classes. Is this anything to do with, like, choleric, phlegmatic, and that sort of thing? Yes, I believe so. So it was warrior, cleric, wizard, rogue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's based on the Golden Girls. I've never seen it. I just kind of know of it. I just know it's a show about sassy older women. Yes. That's that's the extent of my knowledge. Yes. But no, it is canonically, this is not an urban legend. This is an actual thing based on the Golden Girls. So there you go. Anyway. I don't don't know how it fits into a Golden Girls mold. It doesn't have to be them, but. I, I definitely want the ear people. In the party, because I think there's so much potential for that to be an interesting thing. Almost like, you know, Aarakocra have a fly speed, or Mm. uh, Tabaxi can run faster. Like, I think the ear people need a special racial ability to go with there. Like a jumping thing. You can jump a certain distance. Yeah. Yeah, they they clearly run very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I bet they hear pretty well. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so definitely them. I would say for our warrior, we should get one of these uh, women with tame leopards who hunt for them. Yes. Or as a ranger with a beast. <gasps> Ooh, ranger. Definitely yeah. a ranger. Who else have we got? I was thinking we could get the monk as a wizard. Or as a monk. Or as a monk. That would also work. <laughs> That's <laughs> I mean, kind of the, the obvious Or as a cleric. Or as yeah. a cleric. Yeah, you've got options there. Multiclassing. What about the two-headed guy as a rogue? Because he can see if someone's sneaking up behind (laughs) him. I mean, technically, he's not a two-headed guy. He's just got two noses. His stealth is going to be bad, because these are the people who are twin- No. How big are these guys? These are some of the big ones. Ooh, okay. But, you know, sometimes stealth, weirdly, isn't tied to size. Like, some of the stealthiest are, like, half-orcs. That's true. Potentially. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, they're <laughs> these are the ones that are fifty feet tall. Oh, okay, so maybe not them. What about the dog-headed people who are really gentle as clerics? Yeah. It's the centaurs who are really gentle. But it's also the dog people. Remember the guy with the dog head who's eating the leaf? Oh yeah, yeah, because he was doing that dainty. Yeah, eating okay. I feel like that would defy the stereotype because then you could play. Yeah. You could play with this whole thing of like, hello, giant man, lion's head, cleric, very nice. <laughs> All right. I'm into it. Okay. 
Do we have anyone else that we want to add, or are we set? Honestly, I think that's a pretty good group. It's a pretty good party. I also would like to, I I think we skipped over it, but the ear people, I love that they use their ears as bedrolls. Yes! That just seems so practical. So practical. And then they can carry everything else. You don't have to worry about a bedroll for them at all. Exactly. Good campers. It is both a bed and a fashion statement. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you could you could create them as a race and you could do like a status thing with how many earrings they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that would be fairly interesting. It would be. I think one of the values of thinking of this as a campaign setting is that you already have a set of playable races. You've got yes. the ear people, you've got the dog head people. Yes. They're all there. Like some of them you'd have to make not giants, but that's fine because most of them aren't giants in other versions of the same. Yeah. yeah. Of, of their appearances. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you can just go, no, like these are the Plinian version of the ear people where they're normal yeah, sized. For sure. Okay. Our next one is the Tolkien tally. So. <laughs> As I pointed out, he actually wrote about this text yes. and I quoted him. And you did. So we've got so we've one. got that one, and that's I think that's said. He doesn't. I mean, he's got dragons, but the dragons depicted don't have wings necessarily. Although Glaurung yeah. doesn't have wings in the Silmarillion. Yeah, he's a he's a leg crawler one, so that could count. He was more into the Northern European inspirational stuff rather than of the East. He had, like, an eastern part of Middle-earth that, like, we never got a lot of stuff about. So I I bet that in his head, some of this was there. Yes. Yes, because he did have the, what are they, Oilifants? The Oilifants. Yeah. Yes. Oilifants. Yes. So they're there. They're there. Alrighty. Future Mac here. So there are a couple things that we missed here that I only later found. First, in Middle-earth, the region of Harad, where the Haradrim come from, is etymologically and probably just generally based on Siegel Hjarwat from this text. That's where those people from the, the far south in the Lord of the Rings come from, is Harad, which is named after that word. Also, the Lake of the Sun and the Lake of the Moon, which we mentioned Briefly, before mostly getting distracted by the phallic nature of Tiberius's drawing, are actually connected to a moment in the Alexander romance. In the Wonders of the East, the lakes of the sun and the moon have growing next to them balsam trees. In the Alexander romance, there are balsam trees of the sun and the moon, and they speak to Alexander. Tolkien borrowed the idea of the trees of the sun and the moon to make the two trees of Valinor, which you may remember from the Silmarillion, assuming you've read the Silmarillion. If you haven't, then you don't remember those. But one of them is the ancestor of the white tree of Gondor, which you'll know even if your only interaction with Tolkien at all is seeing part of the movies, because that thing is everywhere. All right, back to our original program. I think we can skip. No, we can't skip. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. What's on our kitchen table today? Well, we have pepper and cinnamon. Yes, we do. Human flesh. <laughs> and human flesh. <laughs> and raw flesh. Human flesh and raw Which flesh. Which may or may not include the head. Ooh. And also raw flesh, origin unspecified, mm-hmm. eaten with, with honey. honey. Yes. With honey. That's an important one. Like, to be fair, most of these are kind of delicacies. Mm-hmm. Ooh, oysters and fish, the raw fish. Mm-hmm. 
The guy who the picture just kissing? Just kissing the fish. Yeah, kissing the fish. (laughs) I think that's most of the And possibly camel if you're an ant. Or an... A dog ant. Quote, ant, unquote. Ant. It's a good spread. Yeah. 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 Oh, and very, very hot wings. Yes. Oh, and the big berry. (laughs) The giant berries full of gemstones. Oh, we forgot about them. The giant berries for sure. Man, we've got everything. This text has everything. Everything. Giant (laughs) berries. Human flesh. Oysters. (laughs) (sighs) Big butts. We do have those. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. So this one is specifically for the terminology that we want to use. So sometimes we get interesting terms like kennings or Mm -hmm. a particular unit of measurement that you can use. So, hey, I think you could take, because we still generally sort of use leagues, but you could use stadia. Mm -hmm. And then when your players ask you how far you're going, you can make it up. Like, obviously, <laughs> stay. How how far do you think a stadia is? Yeah, you know, it'll take you a couple days. You know, it's it's 50 stadia. It'll take you a couple days. And then you don't have to actually specify. If you want to specify, go for it. But for those DMs who don't necessarily want to get into the units and measurements of their world, this might work. I'm not that granular. No. You could use pretty much any of the names for these people's. Mm-hmm. Or the places. Or the places. You could use any of the places. A lot of good place names. Yeah. We have a garsech as a word for sea. Ooh, yes. What was the word for the um, the sun people? Seagull. No. Um, no, no, yeah. yeah, that was right. Seagull Herwan. There you go. S-I-G-L-H-E-A-R-W-A-N was the original, according to Tolkien. And it was corrupted into Seagull Wara. S-I-G-E-L-W-A-R-A. Makes sense. And something you can do with this is what I really like to do if I hear a word or phrase that I really like, I will take that word or phrase and make it connected to something that's totally not the original context. So maybe you've got a cult or something or a religion that's really into the sun. They're the Mm -hmm. sun people. Mm -hmm. Boom. You're done. feel like there was another one, but I'm blanking. I really just like homo dubii as a word. It's just a fun word. Yep. That's a good one. There's a bunch of them. I'll, I'll definitely put those on the blog as well, because we've covered a lot. All right. So, Street Smarts. <laughs> street Smarts. Street Smarts. Street Smarts. <laughs> so exactly. we borrowed this one from Mr. Mullaney. In this section, we're looking at what sort of Street Smarts we've learned about traveling in the Middle Ages and living in the Middle Ages yeah. from this text. What lessons can we take from this? Number one, do not touch animals... You are unfamiliar with. <laughs> that is number one. <laughs> Do not go near them. Because some of them will kill you yes, immediately. immediately. It's like Australia. I kind of like using the phrase like, these are thought to be people, just yeah. like as a broader statement. Yes. We don't know, but we, we think. We think they're mm-hmm. people. Assume it's a people. Yeah, assume it's a people. If you don't know. Until you know otherwise. And especially if you don't know whether they're hostile or not, or whether they're quote unquote civilized or not. Yeah. Yeah. I also think this text kind of plays with the idea that big, giant creatures are not always scary or violent. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's yeah. true. And well, well, looks can be deceiving. May I remind our listeners as well that these people all have names. They've all introduced themselves. And one of our previous street smarts has been, if it doesn't give you a name, don't listen to it. So these peoples and groups all have names. So if they do speak to you, except for the, what are they? The Donestras? Don't listen to them. Yeah. 
Don't listen to them. <laughs> but everybody else, you can generally listen to. That's right. You know what they are. Yep. Here we go. Any other street smarts? I think Those we're like the big mm. takeaways. Yeah. Sea oysters. You can apparently live on them for, it kind of implies forever. Forever. Yeah. Like, this sounds like an immortal monk guy. If, he, if They're like, he's living there. When did you hear about him? A thousand years ago. But he's still living <laughs> he's still there. there. This reminds me of the guy who was eating oysters in the other Eastern text that we read. Who He was eating the pearls. He was ingesting the pearls. That was that was something I made up. Oh, was it? Yes, because there's a there's a legend that like particularly enlightened monks when you cremate them leave behind pearls in the That's ashes. Right. And I was like, what if people are just scamming other people by oh eating pearls when they're on their deathbed? But there you go. I love that. This guy, he maybe he's not eating the oysters. Maybe he's eating the pearls. Yeah. I was thinking there. maybe he's just immortal and he likes oysters. <laughs> yeah, it could be that. <laughs> Might not matter what he eats. He just really loves oysters. I, I really feel like oysters are not known as a healthy food. Mm-mm. No, I, it, it could have also been like his god comes down to him and he's like, you can live forever, but if. you have to choose one food. If you could eat one thing for the rest of your immortal life, what would it be? And he's like, oysters, done. And now he's just like, gosh, I hate these things. <laughs> He's cursed. There you go. You can put that in a D&D campaign. Lift the guy's curse so he can eat something other than an oyster. <laughs> Extra curse. This might be an urban legend, but are oysters an aphrodisiac? Yes. And he's a monk. I mean, they are Living alone on an island. Oof. With being an aphrodisiac. I don't know if that's real or not, because I don't want to eat an oyster, but... Ugh. No, they're gross. They're like big boogers. They really are. I don't I- like them. This is an oyster-free podcast. Generally not a seafood person at all, but oysters are extra bad. Yeah, true. Okay, shall we move on to our best moment? Best moment. All of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that we can do that for this one, because it's not a narrative. That's true. It's just a description. Okay, so favorite creature. Or is that the court? That's basically the court. I think that's basically what we're going to do for the okay, court. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to our court. The court. All right. So, Mary, the way this works is that each of us picks someone that we abduct in the manner of the Fae off to our otherworldly court. Oh, no. <laughs> Whoever uh, brought the text goes second. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I assume that you can take one, too, and bring them to your podcast so that you have someone yes. to back you up in any discussions you yes. have with your co-hosts. And I think the guest should always oh, go gosh. first. All right. Who's going to back me up? I want to go through our little picture list again. I want the angry sheep. Okay. <laughs> Specifically <laughs> the angry sheep. Because I think, okay. you know, if you've got the angry sheep backing you up, people are going to hesitate. They're not going to be horrified, right? It's not going to be like a wild creature. They're just going to be like, that sheep's really pissed off. <laughs> and he does have abs and he might. He might just come at me. Yeah, he might ram me. You should absolutely, like, show your co-host the picture and go, like, remember, I have this angry sheep on my side, canonically. One of our, one of the other hosts, Kelly, is a graphic designer, and I'm sure she would have a good old time. There we go. (laughs) With these pictures. Oh, I bet. Oh, something I've discovered. While these manuscripts have not been officially released into the public domain, right. although, again, I think under American law, yeah. they are automatically, the British Library does have a searchable collection of manuscripts, many of which illuminated, that are public domain. So there's a lot of illustrations that are just kind of up for grabs mm-hmm. for graphics type people. Yes. There you go. 
Okay. Am I picking now? You are picking now. Oh, man. I'm torn between the lion-headed guy who runs yeah. away crying. He's good. And the bearded ladies. Also good. Well, no, because there's the bearded ladies and then there's like the ladies with the leopards, right? There's two different women. The bearded ladies have the leopards. The other women are the ones with the tusks and the oxtails. That's right. I'm going to go with the bearded ladies. Yeah. Cause it's a two for one. You get the leopards, right? too. Well, yeah. it, it just gives me like Jasmine vibes, you know, with her lion. Mm. And I'm digging that. Yeah. yeah. They were absolutely on the top of my list, actually. I bet. So now I have to flip you around You always a bit. pick the powerful ladies. I want a powerful lady. I like them. All right. Well, okay. I know who I want on my team if I can't have the uh, woman with the leopard. Okay. I want a Donestra working for Oof, me. Seriously? They're creepy, That's but true. if I know he's on my side, then yeah. he sounds like a good person That's to have. That's fair. All right. Well, we've got our court. Now we've got our final rating. Final rating. How do you even rate this? Out of 10. And we'll average it all together. <laughs> how? What is our criteria for rating this? Like how fun it is? And entertainment. It, pretty much. Entertainment for sure. Sometimes we do accuracy depending on the genre of text. This right. one obviously. It's more of a holistic yeah. thing. Like yeah. how much better or worse is this than what you'd expect if someone said, I'm going to read you a medieval text. Yeah. 10 out of 10 for me. Okay. <laughs> it, and that's a bold statement. But I mean, there is so much here. <laughs> that if you said, like, I'm going to read a medieval text to you, this is not what I would have expected <laughs> at all. I, I don't, like, I don't know what I did expect, but when Mac was like, here's a bestiary, I was like, oh, what's happening? <laughs> and then we just got fantastic creature after fantastic creature. So, like, great. I'm digging it. Man, I think... I'm torn between 9.5 and 10. I sort of want to deduct for that one civilization that steals women or like forces women onto men. So I'm going to give it a 9.5, but I think that's the highest rating I've ever given a text so far. So I'm giving it a 9.5 only deducted for those women who had weird misogyny. Yeah. Yeah. So 9.5. Yeah. I am. That was actually... Where I am, Boom. too. I'm also giving it a 9.5. 0.5 deducted because it is it has a lot of... That's it has fair. some problematic elements, yes. but it's generally fun, and I feel like most of it is just fun yeah. for yeah. fun's Oh, yeah. Sake. For sure. For sure. And it leaves us with a lot of questions mm-hmm. in a good way, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- there's just so much you can take from this. Okay. So, question for Mac really quick. Do you want to do a Leech's Corner this week, or shall we do shout-outs this week? Let's do shout-outs instead, because we're already running, like, we're we, so we've long. run well over we our have, normal time. We have, So, Mary, I actually like, have I'm already going to gonna have to. I know, I know. You yeah. have to go. So, we'll do that on our own. But, oh my gosh, thank you for coming on. Thank You've you. been a wonderful guest. Thank you for having me. Yes. I, this was so, so fun. I am so excited. So, so go ahead and uh, give us your podcast name again, and you can send me the links and stuff, and I will link yeah. that to our blog and our website. And if yes. you want to send on some of your video game stuff that you feel is really appropriate for the podcast, oh, yeah. you can also do that. I don't know if any of it. <laughs> it's like, it is what it is. Um, so you can find Book Squad Goals, the podcast for your ears. 
or the all podcaster for years. Let me back up. You can find Book Squad. I thought Gold, that was the joke. The book club for your ears at booksquadgoals.com. We've got a blog where we write different stuff. We've got links to podcast episodes. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, blah, 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 podcast app of choice. Yes. And we have book episodes as well as pop culture episodes. So even if you think "Mm, books, you can still listen to our episodes about movies or I don't know, whatever, other stuff. Games, etc. All of the above. I am, admittedly, I am the video game nerd. And I'm always like, hey guys, let's talk about video games. <laughs> so I write about video games a lot on the blog, though. And I write about video games professionally at looper.com and svg.com. And you can find me under Mary Osborne. Alrighty. Yeah, this is so fun. This was great. Thank you so much, Mary, for coming on. Yes, thank Yay! you. All right, and definitely check out their podcast, Book Squad Goals, and yeah. Future Mac here. We don't have a transition for our correspondence segment because we haven't thought of a name for it yet. Usually, we solve this by just pulling a quotation from some medieval text that we think is appropriate. You know, like a Grand Meda Goldman is what the Green Knight says in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight when he's proposing the head-chopping game. And Alto Brast is one of Thomas Mallory's favorite phrases in Mort D'Arthur. But unfortunately, when I tried to think back and come up with ideas for this, the only thing that popped into my head was this scene from Blackadder. My lord, no! What? No wishing she's dead. And we're just not sure if we can get away with using that clip because copyright, you know? So instead, we're going to ask you, the listener, to help us out. We're going to put up a poll on our Facebook group with various options that mostly Zoe came up with, and we're also going to encourage you to add your own suggestions. And we'll uh, we'll see what we get from that. So yeah. Uh, anyway, correspondence. Shoutouts. We've got a couple good ones. So first off, I got a really cool email from podstatus.com that tells us that we are in position 55 in books in Brazil, which I thought was pretty cool. For our podcast. That's very surprising. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. So listeners in Brazil, thank you. Uh, we are enjoying being a worldwide podcast. I thought that was great and I wanted to share that. I didn't even know we had listeners in yeah. Brazil. Yeah. And then let's see. There's a couple other good ones. Oh, you sent me this amazing cookbook, which you should describe. I sent you a cookbook? Yes. I think you sent me this link. Oh, of course. Yes, I did. The British Library recently uncovered a cookbook by a man named Jeffrey Fuel, F-U-L-E, who worked in the kitchens of Philippa of Hainault, or Hainault, or however you say that, I don't know if it's French or not, who was Queen of England in the 14th century. And the reason that this cookbook is interesting, just besides being like the book that was made by a royal cook, is that... He includes a recipe for unicorn. Yes. Which 
If there was an actual unicorn, it was probably just narwhal meat. But that's still an interesting recipe. And incidentally, how you do it is you roast it after marinating it in cloves and garlic. Which sounds great, to be fair. And one of the charming things is that this recipe is illustrated, complete with a unicorn on a grill, a woman carrying the unicorn's head in a bowl, and my personal favorite, a bucket with the extra bits sticking out all <laughs> willy-nilly, like the hooves and the, and the horn. horn. Yeah, it's great. So we'll definitely put that in the blog. I thought that was hysterical, and I wanted to include that. Okay, and then we got several emails on the website, which was great. So the first one was from Mark, who talked about shadowed heraldry. So I'll read his email. It's pretty brief. He said, after listening to your first episode where you discussed shadowed heraldry, I wanted to add a bit of trivia that you may find interesting. In the U.S. Army, the dress greens have a metal unit insignia on the epaulets of the jacket, usually the battalion, uh, usually to which the battalion you belong. In the past, if a battalion committed an act of cowardice, members of that battalion would have to wear a black band covering the insignia until honor is earned back. I saw an artillery regiment wearing it like that even long after the Vietnam war where the act of cowardice was committed. I felt bad for those guys. I hope the current members were able to earn it back in the Gulf War. So that talks about a little bit of a changed tradition of shadowed heraldry, but still talking about honor and how honor should be upheld and what to do if it isn't and how it's shown on armor or in this case, dress uniform. Yeah, it's very much the same sort of idea. I had no idea that our uh, armed forces did that. So I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much, Mark, for that one. And then we had another one from Jeffrey who said, Forgotten properties of plants. Just finished your summary of the Gesta Romanorum and was reminded of the Royal Navy improving the scurvy cure until it didn't work anymore. And he sent on a link... Okay, and the blog is called Idle Words, and I'm going to butcher the name. I believe it's a Polish Polish name. Ma- Masij Keglowski. But I'll put that, I'll link that in the blog. But here we go. Quote, it was not easy to find fresh foods that lack vitamin C. Plants and animals tend to be full of it, since the molecule is used in all kinds of biochemical syntheses as an electron donor. But the same reactive qualities that make the vitamin useful also make it easy to destroy. Vitamin C quickly breaks down in the presence of light, heat, and air. For this reason, it is absent from most preserved foods which have been cooked or dried. Its destruction is also rapidly catalyzed by copper ions, which may be one of the reasons sailors with large copper cooking fats were particularly susceptible. So most people are familiar with the idea that sailors in the Navy would get scurvy on long transatlantic voyages, and scurvy is the lack of vitamin C. It's a very devastating disease when you do get it, but it's very, very easy to to fix with vitamin C. And vitamin C is easily found in a lot of fresh fruits, vegetables, and meats. You don't need a lot of it to prevent scurvy. However, However, apparently, citrus was a legal requirement on all British vessels by 1867, but it was becoming superfluous in practical terms with the advent of steamships because travel became so much faster. So even though they had citrus juice back in the day, lemons and limes were interchangeable as a term. So limes have a quarter of the vitamin C that lemons had. So when they started using lime juice, because that's the word that stuck around, they weren't getting the vitamin C that they needed. And when they started using canned foods and dried meat, they weren't getting any vitamin C whatsoever. So where this really shows up is in the later Arctic expeditions. You might be familiar with Shackleton's expedition. They 
specifically prepared to prevent scurvy by bringing a bunch of meat and juice. What they figured out on earlier Arctic expeditions was that fresh meat prevented scurvy and they didn't have any limes. They didn't have any citrus. And they're like, okay, so what is what is actually causing scurvy? So they had the hypothesis that it was actually a form of food poisoning from potomine, which I believe is... It's a bunch of compounds that putrefy animal and vegetable matter. So that's what they thought that it was. So instead of it being a deficiency of a certain vitamin, they thought it was food poisoning, essentially. And so they didn't understand. Shackleton's group didn't understand why the men started having scurvy all of a sudden. And when they went out and killed a bunch of seals and ate the seal meat, the scurvy went away. So they boiled the seal meat, killing all of the vitamin C, mm -hmm, and then... Uh, went back on their trip and completely failed because they got scurvy again. And yeah, so uh, the point that's being made here is that we forgot the cure for scurvy by trying to figure out other ways to fix it. Mm -hmm. And here's another great quote from the article here that was linked it was pure luck that led to the actual discovery of vitamin C. Axel Holst and Theodore Froelich had been studying beriberi, which is another deficiency disease, in pigeons, and they switched to a mammal model and they chose guinea pigs, which also require vitamin C. Fed a diet of pure grain, the animal showed no signs of beriberi, but quickly sickened and died of something that closely resembled human scurvy. Technological progress in one area can lead to surprising regressions. I mentioned, and this is the article, I mentioned how the advent of steam travel made it possible to accidentally replace an effective antiscorbutic with an ineffective one. An even starker example was a rash of cases in infantile scurvy that afflicted upper-class families in the late 19th century. The outbreak was the direct result of another technological development, the pasteurization of cow's milk. The procedure made milk vastly safer for infants to drink, but it destroyed the vitamin C. For poorer children who tended to be breastfed and quickly weaned onto adult foods, this was not an issue, but the wealthy infants were fed a special diet of cooked cereals and milk and were at grave risk. So I thought that was absolutely fascinating because we had a cure for scurvy and the medievals were, well, the medievals and the later early moderns were correct in this approach, but then we totally forgot about it. So it makes me wonder what else we've forgotten about. All right. Thank you, Jeffrey, for that one. Then we had the fantastic article that John gave us which was another absolutely fascinating one because we talked about the drought article mm -hmm. that said that the basically the when or the sty cure was ineffective. This is the reason I thought the shout-outs could replace the leech's corner just fine, because we're going to talk about this now. Yes, we're going to talk about this when cure again. And so this is an article by Freya Harrison, Alwood Roberts, Rebecca Gabrielska, Kendra Rumbaugh, Christina Lee, and Stephen Diggle. It's called A 1,000-Year-Old Antimicrobial Remedy with these words are hard. This is why I'm not a scientist. Antistaphylocal activity. So basically, the question that they're trying to answer is, does this Anglo-Saxon remedy actually work? And they concluded that it actually does work. And if we go, I love that they called it ancient biotics, by the way. I thought that was great. Ancient biotics. <laughs> Let's bring back ancient biotics and test them and see whether they work. So you should read the whole article. It's really, really fascinating. There's some scientific jargon in there. 
But basically what they say, if we go down to the bottom, Bald's ISAV, which is the one we're talking about, kills MRSA in chronically infected animal tissue. They just state that outright, which was amazing. And what they say are, in summary, we have reconstituted a 1,000-year-old remedy for bacterial infection and shown that it kills the most common cause of the infection it was designed to treat. Bald's eye salve eliminates SRS, which is the MRSA, in planktonic culture and reduces viable cell numbers by several orders of magnitude in a synthetic model of established biofilm infection. The effect depends upon the combination of several ingredients, and this is referring to the fact that the cure lists garlic and basically another word for garlic, but they're talking Mm -hmm. about a plant in the same family. So this could have been garlic, it could have been leek, it could have been onion, it could have been chive, something like that. So they tried a whole bunch of different ones. It depended upon the combination of several ingredients and upon the nine-day storage period specified in the recipe. So you'll remember that in Drought's article, they said that any efficacy that the cure had was killed by sitting out for nine days. But this contradicts that statement. And it also says, furthermore, a highly antibiotic resistant strain of SRS is susceptible to bald eye salve when infected tissue from a mouse chronic wound model is exposed to the recipe. So that's saying that antibiotics won't necessarily work on that strain, but bald eye salve will. So that's wild. And in this model, significant bactericidal activity was observed, so it's killing the bacteria, was observed after a brief period of exposure, which the current last-line clinical antibiotic did not kill significant numbers of the bacteria. Wow. Which is astounding. Yeah. This says, our findings contrast with those of a previous attempt to test Bald's ISAF, which is referencing the article that I cited, who found it ineffective. However, these authors do not specify the methods of preparation and did not give quantitative results or details of replication, so we don't know exactly how their tests were conducted. And the big thing that I want to point out here is that the article that Drought and Brennessel did used the scientific method, but it was not done by scientists. It was done by humanists who don't have a firm grasp of how this sort of medicinal testing should be done. Mm -hmm. This article and this test was done by an interdisciplinary crew who went through it in a much more detailed way. Which is kind of how you've got to do it. Like if you want to test old medical cures, you kind of need both someone who understands the old texts and someone who understands medicine. Mm -hmm. They also note that the copper pot did in fact help the cure. So the fact that it's a copper or brass bowl matters, or it could be decorative. They acknowledge that it could be either one. Mm -hmm. The combined activity of molecules derived from the different ingredients might explain why the activity of bald ISAP is greater than the sum of its parts. The mixture may attack the bacteria on several fronts. This is an important consideration for future work on natural antimicrobial compounds. And then my favorite little bit down here says... Quote, when we describe bald's ISAV as being designed to treat eye infection, we do not use the term lightly. There has been considerable debate about the levels of scholarship and scientific method among early medieval and medicinal practitioners. Is it a wives' tale? Are these actual physicians? Are they just mixing it up? What do we what do we think? Quote, this may be partly because of the almost complete absence of theoretical material and the fact that the surviving corpus of Anglo-Saxon medicine seems to be compilations of excerpts and treatises. Furthermore, 
Many recipes, such as the one that requires having a virgin get water from an eastward flowing spring for a cyst which, quote, pains the heart, (laughs) doesn't really, you know, it seems, they quote, say it looks rather dubious. Quote, medicine, as some scholars have claimed, was a craft and not a science in early medieval Europe, and there was lack of explanatory frameworks. Texts like Bald's Leech Book were most likely composed in a monastic environment, mm-hmm. and many text sources, there was a conflation of spiritual and practical healing. More credence has been given to later medieval texts associated with the school of Salerno and the growth of university-based training. However, our finding that the combination of ingredients is crucial for bactericidal activity supports the hypothesis that this ancient biotic was systematically constructed based on empirical knowledge. The fact that Anglo-Saxon recipes do not state detailed amounts of each component requires practitioners to have some knowledge about how much of ingredients to use, which aligns, and this is me speaking, this aligns with the apprenticeship relationship. You would get the book, but you'd also be training under a teacher. So you would know this stuff. Yeah. And I feel like it also aligns with one of the things that I maintain about this, which is I'm sure a lot of the real like science, if we want to use that word, was being done by women who weren't really being included in the written record. Mm -hmm, For sure. So like there may have been a theoretical framework, but patriarchy has meant that it didn't get to us. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was absolutely fascinating. The entire article, I think, is definitely worth a read. And it brings up a lot of questions for me. One of the things that they note is that there is this element of combined spiritual practices that you do find in a lot of the cures in terms of like, say, three paternosters, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And I think that we in Western medicine really underutilize the power of the mind in terms of healing, which Eastern medicines tend to do a whole lot more of. And so I think that because we've embraced the you know, empiricism of science so much, we sometimes forget what spiritual practices can do for a very spiritual society such as the Anglo-Saxons had, whether it's Christianity or older forms of paganism or whatever, whatever form of spiritual practice you have, whether it's just, you know, thinking positively, how you speak to yourself matters. And so I think when you have a physician's text that combines both of those, you are treating the whole body including the spirit, the soul, the uh, what the Anglo-Saxons would say is the mode. The mode. You're treating mm-hmm. the body. You're also treating the mode, the spirit, the, the heart, the body. and the mode. Yes. So that's enough about me ranting on about this. But I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I think there should be more combined research done into ancient texts such as these to try and actually test these. Because we sort of joke about that. It's like, hey, if you try this at home, we claim no responsibility, which mm-hmm. we still don't. But <laughs> there should be some actual... Uh, real research done into this with the help of humanists and medical professionals and scientists. You You can't have just the medical professionals do it. They might not know all the subtleties of the text you're working from. And you can't have just the humanists do it because they don't know medicine. Yeah, they don't know how to, you know, test this. They don't know how to to work it. Yeah. You want at least one person on each side. In case it's not already clear, let me say it now. If anyone is conducting this kind of study, yes, we are absolutely volunteering to assist. Yes. So I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And from a humanist perspective, and from someone who does engage in a lot of spiritual thinking, and someone who obviously studies magic, there's a lot of, you know, 
head game going on with that, I think it's really important to remember that the head game does affect the body. And so we sort of, again, we poke fun at these texts, which we should do. Some of them are hilarious. We should also acknowledge that their headspace and our headspace were very, very different. And we can learn a lot from these texts, both in a medicinal way and in perhaps a spiritual way. And we also shouldn't completely disregard the idea that some of the things that appear purely spiritual have a practical purpose. True. Maybe they say, you know, say three paternosters over the mixture because they don't have a clock, so they can't say, wait mm-hmm. 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or do this at a certain time of day. Yeah. Or they say, like, collect this from an eastward flowing spring because maybe the community that developed this cure... There are two springs. One has the right minerals. One doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there might be reasons behind all of this that we just don't think of. Mm-hmm. Or, for instance, who is a virgin in the community? Well, you don't really want, for instance, someone who is unclean, and I hate to use that term, but someone who might have another sort of infection, or like someone who works in a brothel, to be transferring medical materials who are, that are going inside of a body. So it might be it might be something even as simple as that. Yeah, there could be all kinds of explanations, some of which, like that one, have some problematic elements, but maybe yes. were what the person had in mind. Mm-hmm. What looks spiritual and mystical to us, I mean, probably still is, but may also have a practical element. Yeah, absolutely. So we will definitely cite that one. So thank you, John, for that. That was amazing. And did you have any other shout outs that you are aware of that we need to address? Uh, yes, uh, John gave us a two-part comment, one of which was about a remedy with anti-staphylococcal, uh, yeah. but the other thing was pointing out that just like the anti-racist people in the medieval community want to distance ourselves from these people who like claim Norse pagan iconography, a lot of people in the neo-pagan community are also strongly against racists claiming that iconography, and we should be clear that we are not trying to tar them with the same brush, as it were. No. Yeah, we we understand not. that their community is dealing with the same things that many other communities are dealing with, and that there are racists in there, and we need to figure out how to get rid of them. Edited out here is several minutes of trying to navigate Facebook's wildly unintuitive groups and pages interface. Okay, so thank you, John, for the link to the leech book for this week. And then we can go over to... And that one's in the group, right? Is it in the group or on the page? I don't remember, but I've got it in front of me. Okay, why don't you read it then? Okay, I'm going to try try and do this. Okay, so first, Jean wants to say that Jacob Voragine is actually... And she admits that this is an IPA, but she tries to write it out in a phonetic way so I can say it. I think I think I can say it. You want me to say it? Go for it. Jacob de Voragine, I think. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Her version says uh, ya- Jacopo ja- da Voragine. Jacopo. But, yeah. yeah, Jacopo da Voragine. Yeah. Thank you. Italian. But the point is, he's the author of The Golden Legend, and she encourages us to do some episodes on it, and I think it's, that's a good idea. Oh, absolutely. I did find a public domain, like, semi-modernization of Caxton's version that we can just read straight from. And it's huge. It's like a multi-volume work on a Happy Trust. Alrighty, sounds good. And there's also one more. We got a message from Patrick. That was the other says, one. 
Yes, I would like to point out that there are no toothworms. I believe that they were an explanation for cavities. He is correct. Toothworm was just the explanation that people gave when they had like pains in their teeth and then their teeth were hollow, like there were holes in them. They were like, it was worms. And I would counter that there are no toothworms yet, but we can make them if we believe in ourselves. (laughs) I think it'll take a little bit more than belief, but... We will figure out how to give someone toothworms, and then we will cure them with a candle. It will go with our new program to bring medicine, Anglo-Saxon medicine, back. Yes. We'll have some people, like, checking if recipes work, and then we'll have some, like, I don't know, geneticists trying to design toothworms for us. Yes. And then we can test if those medicines work. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Okay, so that was a lot. So thank you for all the shout outs. We're super excited to see this engagement with you guys. That's so exciting for us. And yeah, anything else? I think that's everything. This is definitely going to have to be split into at least two episodes. Yes, most definitely. Thank you for listening to The Miniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Are you sure it was Jean who gave us that one? I thought... I... John. It might have been John. Let me check. I, I probably wrote the wrong name down, which is my bad. There were several people. Let me see. That'll be embarrassing. I mean, I can go back and fix it. <laughs> we can edit it. <laughs> just, you know, say John a few times and I'll put it in. John. 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 Yeah, there we go.